This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a lot to talk about on today's show. We're going to be talking ethanol here in segment two. Robert White of the Renewable Fuels Association will be on. We saw ethanol stocks climb. In fact, they have been climbing for the last five weeks. Robert's going to give us a little more detail and perhaps some perspective on just what that means. He's also going to share a little bit about a talk he's giving at the National Ethanol Conference later on this year about what's going to happen to fueling stations as we continue to see this push towards decarbonization take place. So stay tuned. We'll be talking to Robert White a little bit later. And Simon Lester, founder of the China Trade Monitor, will be on in segment three. We're going to talk about just what trade with China looks like in 2022. The phase one deal has sunset. It's kind of uncharted territory. China, or excuse me, Simon watches these issues all the time. He'll give us a, a little more insight on what to expect. And finally, folks, we're just about a month away from Commodity Classic 2022. At the end of the show, we'll have a little bit, uh, some of the highlights of what to expect if you're going to make your way down to New Orleans in March. But before we get to all of that, folks, we have got to talk about these farm markets. Woo! A lot of volatility on the Chicago Board of Trade. Today, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, things are moving to help make sense of everything. Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing is joining me today. Dwayne, thanks for making the time to talk to us. Yeah, hey, anytime, Mike. Let's talk a little bit about the sentiment shift in soybeans. Dwayne, yesterday on this show, we were talking about the soybean market. We were up huge. Things were rallying. $16 was was you know within sight. And now today, we're, we're selling off a little bit. What happened overnight in the bean market? Yeah, actually, it's it's not like we had any change in, in news. In fact, you know, we've rallied mostly on the bullish story uh, of weather in South America being reducing the crop size and being a bullish market story, right? Well, actually, this morning, looking at it, I think it's even just a touch hotter for Argentina than we thought. They'll have one rain event Thursday and Friday in Argentina that will expand into Brazil over the weekend. But that's it over a 10-day kind of critical period here. So, yeah, Back to your question, why are we down then? Well, with big rallies, eventually you need to have some profit taking. And we got an important WASDE report or a USDA report tomorrow. So what a perfect time if you got long before and you're looking at your profits to go, well, I don't know if I want to risk that report. I'm just going to exit some of these long positions. So no, it's not like I got bearish news for you this morning, but just some profit taking, I think, is what changed the sentiment. Okay, well, then let's talk about this WASDE report that's coming down the line. If we've got traders growing concerned about what the USDA could project, Dwayne, give us some insight. What are you expecting tomorrow? Right, well, looking at the average trade estimates, there's some pretty wide ranges, and I can start with the U.S. stocks uh, for soybeans, a low-range estimate of 182 versus a 350 million bushels last month, but the average trade guess is around 310. Um, and, of course, that goes back to a lower South America crop. We think exports will increase here, export demand. I don't know how much USDA is going to drop it, uh, the, the stocks, that is, in this month. You know, they like to kind of slow play this stuff. Now, it has been different since Seth Meyer has been in charge. They, they do try to kind of make harsh, harsh reductions right away. But uh, I guess overall, I'm going to say that I'm a little bit worried that some of these lowball estimates might get disappointed. So the bull might be a little disappointed tomorrow. Uh, another example is the Brazil soybean crop size, of course, which that's been, you know, the big talk of the market. Last month, the USDA had it at 139 million metric ton, and that was the reduction from the 144 we started with. Well, now the average trade estimate is down to 133 million metric ton, but a range of 126 to 137. So a wide range there. Uh, I guess the biggest thing I can say is someone's going to get disappointed in the report tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's kind of always a given with a USDA report. Uh, Dwayne, given all of those factors being the case today, seeing this little blip, little profit taking ahead of the report tomorrow, if folks are looking to make some bean sales, and, and we're talking old crop beans here, do you just hold off and wait until tomorrow comes to pass, or is there more downside risk if the USDA really it changes up some numbers on the report and beans? 
I would definitely let the old crop beans go. Now, now, a little disclaimer there, I let mine go about a week too soon here, I think, last week, because we have had a rally since. But, you know, this is a weather scare rally. And even, you know, look back to 2012, remember the rallies we had. Yes, we had high prices, but we overdid it in the futures market. And, you know, we're not going to run out of beans here in the U.S. anytime soon. And actually, Brazil is harvesting, so we're not going to run out of beans in the world anytime soon. To me, this bullish weather event is actually more of a new crop bean story and an acreage story. So as far as that old crop goes, I'd say go ahead and let it go. On the new crop then, Dwayne, you want to sit tight, hold on? Right, exactly. Kind of the opposite. I, that's the only crop we have made. A little bit of new crop sales is in the soybean market, but very little. Uh, I think there's an acreage battle coming here in a month. It, it's going to be kind of fun for the bulls, and corn, soybeans, wheat are all going to participate in that rally, and it should be quite fun. So, yeah, it sounds odd to be bullish the old or new crop and, and bearish the old crop because they always run together. But uh, for this situation, I feel like that's a smart way to go. Well, let's take a look over at the corn market. You mentioned you might be seeing corn and wheat tag along with a rally in the soybeans. Dwayne, what do you think in the USDA is going to show us tomorrow on the corn side of their supply and demand estimates? On the corn side, I actually... I think it's going to be a fairly quiet report. You know, export demand for the U.S. has been strong. Um, so has ethanol crush margins. But uh, it sounds like later in the, uh, the your show here, you're going to talk a little bit about those profit margins dipping. And that's going to be an interesting listen because that is a concern for me, too. But for tomorrow's report, I don't think USDA is going to make any bearish numbers. In fact, might be slightly bullish for the corn. Uh, it's hard to say on South America for the corn crop, right? So they're getting the there's Brazilian soybean crop off quickly, that means they're getting the Safrina corn crop planted quickly. That's always key because it'll continue to grow during their rainy season. So don't look for any major changes in the corn report tomorrow other than it's just a continued tight, continued supportive uh, of $6 price for corn, I think. Now, Dwayne, you mentioned uh, they're going to get that Safrina crop in early, but there is that dryness. There is still that weather scare in South America. Does this pull December corn up here as we get through the next two months of Brazilian weather? I think I think it does, Mike. I, I've actually been a little disappointed that corn can't participate more in this soybean rally we've had because if it's that bad of a, of a weather scare for the soybean crop, why do we think it's going to just all sudden rain and be just fine during the month of February? You know, we're still in a La Nina situation down there. I think there'll be weather scares ahead, and you tack that on to an acreage battle or maybe you know fertilizer logistics talk in the next month. No, I, I think uh, corn actually has a rally in front of it yet, old and new crop. Dwayne, the only market really with a rally going on today is spring wheat, up 14, 13 cents here in uh, some of the spring contracts. What, what happened in the spring wheat market? We had the Stats Canada report this morning, and all wheat stocks came at 15.5 million metric ton. That was down from the 17.3 million metric ton expected, and down from, get this, 24 million metric ton last year. So, you know, I'm up further north here. We, we know what drought what happened last year, but that's, boy, that's a significant cut in stocks up there. Like I said, a lot of it was expected, but it's enough to get a bullish push in the spring wheat market this morning. All right, and a bullish push indeed. Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. Robert White from the Renewable Fuels Association will be with me after the break, talking ethanol. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. When you choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, you're choosing exceptional weed control. It controls more weeds than any other soybean system and offers up to 14 days of soil activity on certain small-seeded broadleaf weeds. Plus, you get triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate when used with Extend Flex soybeans. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Claims are based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Pair with a strong weed management program. Always follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. 
From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for joining us today, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about what is happening in the world of agriculture. One of the trends we've seen since December has been the build in stocks uh, around the country of ethanol, the ethanol stockpiles around the globe. We hit a, a really the lowest point in five years in December. They've been growing since then. And that's got me wondering, what does this tell us about the future of demand for corn for ethanol here throughout the spring? Well, one man has his thumb on the pulse of that industry. And that's Robert White from the Renewable Fuels Association. Robert, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's talk a little bit about this build-in stocks here. Robert, what is happening in the ethanol industry? Crude prices continue to scream higher. What's making ethanol uh, lose a little bit at the gas pump? Well, there was definitely a, a lack of supply, uh, mostly driven by logistics throughout the end of the 2021 calendar year. And those stockpiles are starting to build up. We've seen uh, growth almost week in, week out, uh, lack of imports coming in, and gasoline demand kind of going ebbing and flowing each week. So you're seeing, uh, as of last week, um, you know, a four-week average rate uh, decline in production, but you're also looking at an annualized rate of over 16 billion gallons, which is very strong production, very strong demand. But as those stockpiles build, it has obviously lowered the price the uh, price on the market, and we're hoping to see some of that balance as crude and gasoline continue to climb. Robert, for those of us who are outside the ethanol industry but looking in, the assumption is that when crude oil prices really start to move higher, ethanol looks more attractive by comparison. Does that still hold up here in 2022? It does. It does. And, and one thing that I, some of the listeners might not fully appreciate is that most of the time ethanol's strongest value, especially when crude and gasoline are high, is its octane value. Uh, if you replace the octane enhancing ability of ethanol with a crude or a petroleum product, it is much more expensive and, and continues to grow uh, that margin, that differential, if you will, 
between those octane enhancers uh, grows as the amount of uh, the price of crude increases. So it, yeah, it entices the blenders to use more ethanol and encourages more E15 and E85, and obviously that's good news long term. It is, but of course, we've got to get the driver to put the ethanol in their vehicles. Robert, you talk to retailers around the country every day. What is the general take from retailers now that year-round E15 is in limbo? Is it causing them to to back off their enthusiasm for installing blender pumps? Well, the answer is it depends. You know, it depends on where they are at, uh, how much volume they do. If they're, you know, some of the major petroleum marketers, they're looking at the REN value and the differential of the ethanol and gasoline margins uh, and prices, you know, on the market that we just talked about. So if the blending economics are strong, the REN value is strong, and you're not an obligated party that and can sell those RENs at the end of the year or throughout the year, then the value proposition is tremendous for those eight and a half months out of the year uh, when E15 is allowed to be sold year-round. The other part of the equation that often gets forgotten is that this only affects uh, areas where conventional gasoline is sold. So that is 70% of the total market, which indeed is a big swath of that total market. So you're looking at all the reformulated gasoline markets for the major metropolitan cities, and then states like California going through the final phases of E15. This uh, summertime issue does not affect those areas. So we're we're continuing to focus on those areas where it can be sold year-round. And some of those retailers are, are, are paying attention and taking advantage of those economics. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Robert, you mentioned some of these states are moving ahead. I know Iowa has recently announced some access programs for increased uh, you know, biofuel availability. Are there any other states besides the ones you mentioned that are really kind of pushing the way ethanol works in their fuel systems? Absolutely. You've seen you know, legislation, whether it's some sort of standard or mandate. And in other states, you're seeing incentives, like in Michigan, uh, being put on the table and considered. And then you have other states that are looking at low carbon or clean fuel standards like New Mexico. So this is a phenomenon that's going to continue, again, as we look to decarbonize our liquid transportation fuel market, and also simply because of the economics. We all see high gas prices, and the ethanol value proposition is very good right now. Well, that's good to hear. Robert, I want to ask you, you are leading a roundtable at the National Ethanol Conference uh, coming up here, well, gosh, two weeks from now, and you're going to be talking about how retailers are looking at the industry. Could you give us a a little bit of a tease? What have you found when you're talking to retailers about ethanol? Well, we have an excellent panel coming up at the National Ethanol Conference. Uh, The names are associated with various companies, but really we've got the three, three individuals representing all four national fuel retailer uh, associations, that's NATSO, uh, Truck Stop Operators, the National Association of Convenience Stores, Energy Marketers of America, and, and, and uh, I'm blanking on one, but there's another. Um, long story short, the folks that listen to the retail constituents each day, and what we tend to forget about is they have the most valuable real estate on almost every street corner in America, and what are they looking at? Are they really ready to spend a lot of money and add EV charging stations and pay more for their power and allow someone to sit there for 45 minutes to recharge and, you know, when they're used to, you know, swapping new customers out every five to seven minutes. So it's, it's really getting down into where are, what are they thinking? um, How quickly will this revolution take place? And then ultimately, where will we end up in the overall balance of internal combustion engines, electric vehicles, and maybe even some new technology? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating. And, you know, I was so glad I saw that you shared this on Twitter. You'll be leading this roundtable. And it got me thinking about, Robert, I saw a a, a non-chain service station with an under new ownership banner. And it made me think this would be a challenging time to take the risk to acquire a a fueling station, liquid fueling station, given the the large push towards EVs. I imagine a lot of these retailers probably feel left out in these discussions about what's coming for America's fuel supply, don't you think? Well, yeah, you get down into these individual station owners' conversations, and it's really, especially nowadays, it's did fuel get delivered as the power on and did someone show up to work? I mean, that's really the the basics of running a, a gas station. And now you add in layers of, you know, the new technologies that might come and 
we, we've seen retailers install electric vehicle charging stations and suddenly that as i mentioned that space is gone for 45 minutes so you've lost you know 10 15 customers that also came in and spent you know three to seven eight dollars and so they really have to do the math and then is the financing available the one thing that's come out of the pandemic is a lot more people are buying stuff inside than they used to and sometimes not even buying fuel while they're there and that's where they really make the money but we're trying to show them at the pump how to make a lot of money uh, selling higher blends of ethanol and capitalizing on the customers that they already have and more they can pull in from the street. And Robert, I know you've been having these conversations with retailers for a long time. Is it getting easier? Are you finding more and more retailers willing to consider ethanol even when they're outside of the traditional ethanol states? Yeah, it's 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 still a challenge, Mike, because you, there's a lot of turnover, as you just mentioned, in those in those gas stations. Sometimes it's a corporate uh, structure that you got to break through to get to the right people and, and make that business case. But we are seeing, you know, as the as the value of ethanol continues to enhance at the pump, you're seeing more and more people say, okay, well, I can't price my E10 to compete with the guy that has E15 down the street. So you're seeing some of that peer pressure start to come through. You're also seeing several retailers trying to replace their E10, at least at the regular and mid-grade levels, with E15 and just move E10 out. So that's another exciting moment in time, something that obviously has to happen in order for E15 to truly be realized and become fully successful. Um, but there's just, you know, all these hurdles that continue to come up and everything that they have to consider. Uh, that's why I'm excited about this panel and what will come out of it. Absolutely. Robert, looking out at the year ahead, ethanol facilities have been very profitable for the past six months. Are they tightening their belts? Are they concerned that a return to more normal uh, profit levels might be coming soon? Well, they always expected, especially in the at the end of the year and the first quarter of, of a new year. It's usually the, the lowest margin timeframes around ethanol, but this year has been a little different. So they're enjoying the moment. It's been a rough few years, uh, so they're, they're still looking some of those wounds, um, but everyone's still pretty positive. We have a lot of new markets being developed, and as I said, if you look back at the EIA numbers for this last year, we're trending to an overall blend rate of 10.35% for 2021, and that should be something everyone's proud of. There we go. Things to look forward to. Robert White of the Renewable Fuels Association, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Mike. Talk soon. And folks, stick around when we return after the break. We'll be talking to Simon Lester. He's the founder of the China Trade Monitor, past attorney with the World Trade Organization. He understands trade. He's going to join us to share what may, might be ahead in this year with China. Stay tuned to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we've created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best thoughts. You'll have a front-row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the grain sector, we have pulled off the lows from the overnight and the early go this morning, but we are still trading mostly lower across the ag commodities. Soybeans a little lower as vegetable oil prices started with bearish influence from Tuesday's lower crude oil price. Demand for new crop soybeans remains active thanks to dry weather problems in South America. 
USDA announced that 17 million bushels of new crop soybeans were sold, 4.85 million to China, the rest to unknown, presumably China. We continue to see crude oil lower down $1.76 a barrel, 89.56. Several news sources reporting that Russia troops are expected to pull out of Belarus later this month. So that is a development to watch there with the geopolitical issues in the Black Sea region. Now, of course, we're watching these markets ahead of Wednesday's WASDI report as that's going to be a a big market mover tomorrow uh, with potentially some changes to the South American production. And that's something we're going to be watching very closely as we get into Wednesday's trade. Current numbers right now, March core down two, 633 and a quarter. July down two and three quarters at 631. March soybeans nine lower, 1572 and three quarters. July down nine at 1571. March bean meal 250 a ton higher, 455.30. March bean oil down 180 points, 63.54. March Chicago wheat up a quarter penny, 7.69. March Kansas City wheat up or down one and three quarters now, 7.90. March Minneapolis spring wheat 12 and a half higher, 9.33 and three quarters. February lean hogs up 95, 88.65. April up 52, 101.80. Feeder cattle for March down seven, 164.95. February live cattle down 47, 141.35. April down 105, 145.35. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if a lot of you are Winter Olympics fans, but they are underway in China. They have been, uh, well, rocking and rolling here for a few days, and China is back in the news, not just because of the Olympics. China is in the news because of a slate of agreements they signed earlier this week with Russia. And they're also in the news because today we're going to be talking about how China perhaps failed to hit the targets set out in the phase one trade agreement. Well, what's that going to mean for policies towards trade with China under the Biden administration? I don't know, but one man who does have a better idea of this whole territory than I do is Simon Lester, founder of the China Trade Monitor, uh, professor at numerous law schools around the country. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to talk first about the U.S. and their interactions with China. Deputy U.S. Trade Representative Sarah Bianchi yesterday told a trade conference that China had failed to meet its purchase commitments under phase one of the deal and that conversations between Washington and Beijing had been very difficult. Simon, what does that mean in practice? I think that when we see U.S. government officials, you know, sort of making headlines, you know, saying these things and, you know, generating a lot of attention, um, we have to think about, you know, why that is. You know, is there some change in policy coming or were there external events that drove it? So I think one thing that's going on is that the uh, monthly trade data um, was was about to come out, and, and this particular monthly data is important because it was able to, you know, give us a full picture of, um, U.S. sales to China in 2021, so we get a final verdict on how China did under its uh, purchase commitments in the, the Phase 1 trade deal signed under the Trump administration. So that, I think, drove 
um, the Biden administration, Biden administration officials like Sarah Bianchi to, to, to make comments like this, um, trying to get out ahead of the fact that uh, China you know, isn't meeting these purchase commitments. So, so I don't necessarily think that these recent comments uh, signify or signal a big change in policy or new developments coming. It was uh, you know, the final, as I said, the final data was out. The Biden administration felt you know, compelled to comment. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I'm not reading into this anything like, oh, there's a big change coming. It's just, uh, you know, it, it came up, uh, uh, you know, these officials were saying these things, but I, I don't think we're suddenly seeing a new direction. It's just, you know, it's more externally driven than the result of, a, you know, internal deliberation and change in policy. Okay, so no real changes in direction, but Simon, I think that begs the question, what's the direction that we're going in? Has the has the Biden administration been able to lay any more of an outline as to how they're going to approach trade with China here? We're almost two years into this administration. Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is, is no, and the direction has just been, we're on autopilot. You know, we have this phase one deal, and the, the Biden administration folks just keep saying, well, we're going to enforce it, but then you know, in the, the comments made over the past couple of days, I think they, they made it pretty clear that you know, there are limits to the enforceability of this agreement, just the way it was designed. There's really not much they could do. I mean, the only thing they really could do under the deal would be to say, well, we don't think China's compliance were to impose more tariffs. And if they did that, I think everyone thinks the reaction would be, well, then China would impose more tariffs of its own, and so we'd be back into the trade war. And that just doesn't really get us anywhere. You know, if your goal is... Uh, to get China to, to change its domestic laws, uh, change its domestic policies, or simply to buy more, you know, American goods, um, you know, adding new tariffs won't, won't get us there. So it doesn't seem like the Biden administration has a plan to, to go anywhere with China. One of the big things they're working on right now is a, a broader framework for working with, with allies, cooperating with other countries in the, the Pacific region. Um, that is vague in and of itself. Uh, but but it does seem like that's something that they're trying to make a little more concrete. Whereas on China, I mean, I haven't heard any indication of well, we'd like to go in this direction. You know, they're they're, they, you know, they're sort of they sometimes denigrate the phase one deal a bit. They say, well, it's something we inherited, um, but they don't seem to have an alternative. There just there aren't ideas being floated out there. Um, so yeah, we're a little lost. It's it's directionless, I think. Well, and I am glad you mentioned the phase one deal. As I was introducing this piece in the last segment, I said the phase one deal has sunset, but Simon, we're still operating under the framework. So what, what is the legal standing of phase one? Is there still more to come from the Chinese in terms of purchases? I, in terms of the deal, whether or not it comes, I, I understand, will remains to be yeah. seen. As I understand it, so the purchase commitments, there were two years of explicit numbers, um, you know, for 20, 2020 and 2021 that China was supposed to meet. And then afterwards, I think there was something vague about, you know, maybe we'll work on new numbers or that you know, the parties had understandings of it, but there's nothing on paper in terms of purchase commitments after 2021. What you do still have is these kind of what were called structural commitments. So China's committed to, you know, ratchet up uh, intellectual property protection or to, uh, to stop doing forced technology transfer. And those things all still exist. I mean, it's an agreement between two you know, governments. I mean, it exists on paper. Um, I mean, I think one of the criticisms has been, well, it doesn't have a dispute settlement mechanism like most trade agreements do, where if, you know, if, if the U.S., if the Biden administration doesn't think China's doing what it's supposed to on intellectual property, there's a lot of really specific terms in here. It's not just sort of generally speaking, they have to protect intellectual property. It gets very specific and detailed. Then, you know, normally what would happen under a trade agreement is the U.S. government could file a complaint and you would get a, you know, panel of arbitrators to, to adjudicate it, to evaluate whether China's compliance. But the phase one deal doesn't have that. So it's just, you have these words on paper, China has agreed to do X, Y, and Z, but there's no way to, to evaluate whether they're complying. Um, so that's, I mean, I've, I've always said that's one of the fundamental flaws of this phase one trade deal. And, you know, some of the substance provisions I think are good and are useful, but it's just not structured in a way that, that I think you could get China to comply with it. I mean, I just, I don't, my sense is China doesn't take seriously, and I don't think most people would, the unilateral determination of one government that they're violating the rules. You know, generally what you need in, in international relations is some kind of interna neutral international body to weigh in. And you just you don't have that with the phase one deal. 
And do you, do you have a sense, Simon, of how the U.S. and China might work? You mentioned we need a, an international body. Well, we've got the World Trade Organization. China's in it. The U.S. is in it. Is there a way forward through the WTO in streamlining trading between the two countries? There is a theoretical way forward, but you would have to have you know, both sides you know, agreeing to that approach. And, and right now, um, you're starting with the Trump administration, but considering on, con continuing under the Biden administration, um, there's been a blockage in the dispute settlement system, um, the, the appeals body there. So they have a sort of lower level course than the appeals course. The appeals course just doesn't exist because the U.S. has blocked appointments to it. And China is a big... Part of that, the U.S. didn't like some decisions uh, that were issued in relation to U.S.-China disputes, but it's not just about China. It, it's broader. So, yes, in, in theory, this could all be dealt with in the WTO, but you would have to have the U.S. on board with um, letting the WTO do that. But the WTO, you also have other, other countries who are always blocking things. Uh, so it's hard to get things – it's hard to get broad agreements done at the WTO right now. But in theory, you could have one. Um, that involves, say, the U.S. and the EU and Japan and, and China, all about, you know, so one big issue is subsidies, and there's an allegation that China, the Chinese government provides, you know, massive subsidies, and that hurts U.S. Uh, producers. So in theory, you could get a new agreement um, on, on reining in subsidies, uh, but the, again, the U.S. seems reluctant to engage on these things, and uh, at the same time, the U.S. government is getting ready to give out massive subsidies through various uh, federal legislation. So, um, so, it, so it's, it, practically speaking, it, it's difficult for the WTO um, or for governments at the WTO to, to do anything like this. But, I mean, that is what I would recommend, but it's just there are political challenges to it. Well, Simon, with those political challenges, now that we're seeing China and Russia really strengthen their partnership, or at least that's the impression I got, you can correct me if I'm wrong, does that change the political calculation as far as making an international committee to perhaps try and address some of these issues? I, I do think the, the China-Russia you know, deals, such as they were, are, are, are notable and you know, they mean something. Um, I, the thing about Russia is you know, it, it's, got, it's pretty limited in its economic um, you know, capability. Uh, there are just only really a few areas where it's, you know, it's kind of sort of a world leader, and you know, energy, gas, and oil are, are the big ones. So, so yeah, it means something if Russia is going to sell its national, natural gas to, to China um, because China needs that, um, and you know, otherwise they might get it from the U.S. And so it, it means something if they're getting it from Russia, not from the U.S. But it, it's pretty limited in economic impact. So you know, I, I think that if the U.S. and the Europeans push against China and Russia too hard, it will drive China and Russia together a bit. Um, but I do also think that China, again, again, it's sort of economically limited in, in the impact. Also, China and Russia probably have a bunch of their own differences as well. So, you know, it, it's sort of a, a marriage of convenience. Um, I just, I, I don't know that they're really kind of long-term deep allies. They're just, um, you know, temporarily united against, uh, against the West. I mean, look at an issue like yeah. Ukraine. I mean, if Russia invades Ukraine, I don't know how happy China is with that. <laughs> so, so it's just, there's a lot of tensions in that relationship. So it's something we need to pay attention to, but it, I, I don't think it's something to, to freak out about, and it, it's not as significant as it, as it might sound at first, first glance. Gotcha. Uh, more of a the enemy of, of my enemy is my friend type situation yeah. there with the, the China-Russia get-together. Now, Simon, in order to have trade, of course, we've got to have buyers in China. There's some concern about the property slowdown in the country, in the country of China. Does that make you nervous about their buying power throughout the year? Or at least in terms of ag products, is the Chinese government going to make sure their, their uh, constituents are fed? I feel like there are a number of short-term and long-term economic disasters looming for, for China. There's sort of a demographic problem with not enough young people, um, not enough babies being born. But I think sort of short-term, you look at kind of your property uh, valuations. Long-term, you look at just the, the overall health of the economy. Um, I don't think that's the major factor. I think that is something to, to, to think about. But that's not the main Something to think about. We'll be back with, with more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. 
And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We We win. We, we, we We are are the the Foundation foundation Fighting fighting blindness. Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking to Devin Gogler, CHS Grain Origination Specialist, and he's here to discuss why you should consider sunflowers in your crop rotation. Devin, why is 2022 a good year for farmers to consider planting sunflowers? In 2021, we felt that the pandemic was going to slow demand for the confections, and it, it did for the entire sunflower industry. Acreage was reduced, add in a major drought that hit most of the sunflower growing region, and the North American supply chain is going to be fairly empty by the time we get to harvest. Pricing is strong because acres are needed. Devin, let's talk ROI. What value can sunflowers bring to an operation? According to the USDA, over the last 10 years, the confection sunflowers have had one of the highest returns per acre of any of the crops planted in the Great Plains. And you add in for 2022 an uncertain herbicide supply, you might be forced to change up your rotation. So we've had sunflowers successfully grown all the way from southern Manitoba all the way down to Lubbock, mostly in the western Great Plains. You know, additionally, fertilizer prices in 2022 are going to be very high. In most scenarios, nitrogen is the only thing that you need to get a yield response in sunflowers. And if your soil has uh, nitrogen left over from 2021, especially if you had a failed corn or wheat crop out there, take advantage of sunflowers deep taproot to capture the dollars that are already left out in your field. All right, folks, that's Devin Gogler, CHS Grain Origination Specialist. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. When you choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, you're choosing exceptional weed control. It controls more weeds than any other soybean system and offers up to 14 days of soil activity on certain small-seeded broadleaf weeds. Plus, you get triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate when used with Extend Flex soybeans. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Claims are based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Pair with a strong weed management program. Always follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues. I want to give a, a little bit of a heads up here to our listeners across South Dakota, Eastern Nebraska, and North Central Kansas. If uh, if you've been watching, we've got a red flag warning coming into effect over your parts of the country. There's going to be high winds, low humidity, and that relative or that dryness rather is going to be a concern. So if you're planning on burning or if you are a smoker, do be careful with where you put that ash if you are across the central plains today. Looking out over the next month, folks, we are getting close to Commodity Classic. Commodity Classic 2022 returns March 10th. That's day one of the actual official Classic with all of the meetings. The events down in New Orleans do start, though, on March 8th. They got tours getting underway on the 8th and the 9th. Registration kicks off on the 9th and then the 10th. 11th and 12th of March. It's Commodity Classic Corn Congress there on day one. We've got all sorts of events. The trade show gets underway um, the evening, excuse me, the afternoon of the 10th. So if you are planning on heading down to New Orleans, if you are an officer with a commodity organization, or if you're just a farmer looking to get together and share in that uh, well, breaking bread with one another one more time. Let's get this on your schedule. This is coming up. This is March 10th, 11th, and 12th in New Orleans at the Convention Center. There is going to be a ton of things going on. There will be a lot of educational sessions. If you've never had a chance to get to the Commodity Classic, folks, it is a very cool experience. I'm excited. I will be down there this year. I'll be on the trade show floor. We'll be producing the show from Commodity Classic. Hope to see all of you there. If you're going down to New Orleans, let us know. You can find the show on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show or find us on Facebook. And I'd love to connect with you if you're down there. There are going to be more than 50 educational sessions on the schedule in New Orleans. And one of the, the, the issues large issues they're trying to address in these educational seminars is how to deal with uncertainty. Gary Porter, he's the he's a Missouri farmer and he's the co-chair of the 2022 Commodity Classics, said in a statement that, quote, some of the things we're experiencing in ag are unprecedented, which creates uncertainty because all Commodity Classic educational sessions are selected by farmers for farmers. Growers can trust that they will receive high quality, relevant information on important issues and trends that will directly affect their operation. End quote. That was Gary Porter. He's the co-chair of the Commodity Classic. Folks, it is going to be a really good event. The ability to get together and share ideas with other farmers in person, farmers and and, well, just other folks up and down the supply chain in our industry. We're in a period in 2022 where understanding the challenges your retailers are facing are going to make you a better customer, somebody that that retailer is going to seek out in the future, and understanding where your, where your buyers are struggling in 2022 with supply chain logistics is going to make you a better seller. There are ways that farmers can find additional value in the craziest of times. Commodity Classic 2022 is going to be a time to kind of put that thinking cap on and figure out how to best manage it. Now, I do want to let folks know, COVID is still a concern. Of course, anytime we get to, well, most large metro areas, there are uh, restrictions and uh, some concerns about COVID. New Orleans is no exception. So I want to make sure folks know about this. If you're planning on attending, starting February 1st, attendees five and up must have proof of either a negative PCR, molecular or antigen COVID test within 72 hours, or you have to be vaccinated. Two doses of the uh, Moderna and Pfizer COVID vaccine or one dose of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. The city of New Orleans is not requiring a booster for any of this. And there is a mask mandate. Now, all of these uh, conditions were in place as of early January. But of course, listeners, as you all know, the situation around COVID is changing rapidly. We're seeing a lot of states and cities look at some of those restrictions. So say stay up to date on the actual situation in New Orleans. You can do that Visit the website. It's pretty easy. It's commodityclassic.com. They have a health and safety tab. You can click right there and see just what will be required as you prepare to get down to New Orleans. Commodity Classic does say they will follow all state, local, and venue guidelines, and Classic attendees will be required to show proof of being fully vaccinated or that negative test to participate in the Classic and affiliate events either at the convention center or at hotels. So if you're planning on coming down, 
just be aware of that, folks. Those are the rules. And if we're going to play in that game, we got to be aware of that. We've also got some other things happening in the world of agriculture, namely high income. It was reported by USDA that we are seeing some dollars in the pockets of farmers. Of course, this is on average. I know a lot of folks struggled in 21 and 20, uh, excuse me, 2020 and 2021. But those years, rather 2021 and 2022 could be the highest years for farm income since the record $123.7 billion that happened in 2013. So this inflationary surge, this push back into commodities should be keeping more dollars in farmers' pockets. However, Joe Glauber, formerly of uh, USDA, notes that this is promising, looking at profitability levels at this point in the year, but 2022 is going to be very volatile. I don't think that's much of a surprise to any of our listeners who have seen the kinds of volatility we've been watching across the commodity markets. We do continue to see that happening right now. I guess as we take a look, I want to to pull up and see if crude was still rallying. We got a little bit of a sell-off here to close the day, or excuse me, uh, here in the middle of the day, March crude down $2, sub $90, which is a win if you're out there buying a lot of crude oil. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where we are going to be watching the effect on inflation as crude oil prices continue to drive this market throughout the year. A quick other note from that USDA report yesterday, federal subsidies are expected to drop to $11.7 billion. This would be the first year of relatively normal spending since the trade war got started in 2017. Now, of course, that could all change with weather. Prevent plant could be a concern. There is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of volatility remaining ahead of us throughout 2022. Folks, keep your head on a swivel. Be prepared. And thanks for listening to AOA. Tomorrow, we're going to talk the impact of rising interest prices, rising interest rates, on our national debt. So stay tuned, or rather tune in tomorrow. We look forward to hearing you, seeing you, having you listen to us right here on AOA. Thanks, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station.